This is a Pele Media Podcast. Welcome back to Jurassic Park Minute. Jurassic Park Minute is the fan podcast that chronicles and overanalyzes the classic 1993 film Jurassic Park Minute by Minute. I'm Kyle. I'm Brady. And folks, we are joined today by our dear friend uh, and podcast uh, phenomenon himself, Mr. Brad Mendenhall from the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast. Brad, how are you doing this evening? Uh, I'm uh, doing real good. Excited to be here. I don't know. I don't know if I could call myself a phenomenon. You guys do. Like, between the two of you, there's... 10 podcasts a week that you do. I'm lucky if I get one out a week. So uh, I'm always impressed by just the work that Pele Media is doing. You guys are uh, just, I'm always amazed by the energy and the quality that you're able to put out. So uh, very excited to be joining you. We appreciate it. I tell you what, we're, you know, definitely blown away by your podcast abilities, but also your willingness to help out with different, uh, you know, foundations, around like the cystic fibrosis foundation for one and the um one that we actually spoke about on your uh best of the 90s show the other night for ryan what was what was the one that he's involved with uh yeah uh ryan and his beautiful wife katie um they uh just competed uh ryan just competed in one of our best of the 90s matchups and they're deeply involved in the special olympics so uh it's any way that we can sort of do a little bring a little good to the universe by our podcast we uh, try to do Definitely. Awesome. So, Brad, for the folks out there that maybe they haven't heard, uh, they didn't listen to Ghostbusters Minute and maybe aren't aware of what the Cosmic Geppetto podcast is, can you give us a little bit of background on how that show came to be and what kind of stuff you cover over there? Well, uh, it's a pop culture co- podcast. It actually started, we were going to, it was actually originally called um, Movies That Marvel because we were just going to talk about uh the, the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and uh, we found it too constraining because we just had some fantastic people who joined the show, had a lot of cool stuff to talk about, and we decided to sort of open it up and we talk about comic book movies, non-comic book movies, science fiction, TV. Uh, Kyle uh, was just on, and our friend, uh, frequent contributor Jarf, was just on to talk about uh, the t- excellent TV show Westworld. Um, we've also have talked about all sorts of music and uh, social issues, and it's become a just a really neat place to talk about anything cool in geek culture or whatever we want to talk about. And uh, when I started, it was just going to be me and my friend Jarf, who I did a radio show back uh, in college with. And we started inviting people. And to our surprise, people agreed to do it. Uh, Kyle has been on, gosh, probably five or six times now. Um, Brady just recorded his first episode where uh, I was... Brady has been on before, but not with me on at the same time. And we just recorded an excellent Best of the 90s matchup where it was Army of Darkness versus uh, Mystery Men, uh, which was a lot of fun. And it's just been a really fun thing. We've done some cool stuff and has some fantastic people. Uh, Kyle's wife, Kathleen, has been on a couple times. She's always fantastic. And we just uh, had our uh, wrap-up episode for 2016, and we got Kathleen to sing. You did, yeah, and I wasn't. When, Kathleen and I were listening to that uh, on our our car ride to her parents' house yesterday for the New Year's uh, celebration, and I wasn't. Uh, I had forgotten that she was going to be part of the song, and when it got to her verse, I was like, "Wait a minute, that voice sounds really familiar." <laughs> but so one of the things I love about the Cosmic Geppetto podcast is clearly you have a, a large panel of people who are really into music. But Brad, you yourself are a musician, and you record a lot of original music for the podcast. Uh, and of course, you did a song that some of the listeners to our show might be familiar with. You did uh, Thunder Lizards, uh, which right. we played a couple weeks ago on the show. So, uh, 
Yeah, that was. Uh, thank you for doing that. That 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 song came out amazing. That was a lot of fun, and what it stemmed from is Kyle and I are friends on uh, Facebook, and you actually mentioned one time on Facebook that you always thought the songs Werewolves of London was actually Lizards of London, or... Uh, yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> Werewolves of Thunder is what right, I thought it was. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that actually got... And it's, it's one of those things where that's all it takes to get my brain to go off in a couple dozen different directions. It's like, ah, oh, Werewolves of Thunder. It's like, ah, hey, you know, they do... Dinosaurs. This is called Dungeons. There we go. So yeah. uh, <laughs> well, it, it fit perfectly, and the song was pretty amazing. And uh, thank you for doing that. We're definitely gonna, you know, seed that throughout the show. I'm sure we'll play that on a few different episodes, oh, yeah. the same way that we did. Uh, Give me just a minute. The song that you wrote for Ghostbusters Minute, which uh, Brady, Brady, and I can attest to this. Seriously. We will find ourselves before we we're, we're doing the show. We'll just be sitting here and humming that yep. song, and then we'll just start singing that as we're yeah. making show notes. I've had but, friends that I've played it for. Yeah, Jeff. We'll just walk around like humming the tune to it. Yeah. It's it's a great song, but yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you for doing that, and you're you're really talented at that. But um, so tell us a little bit about your background with Jurassic Park. Did you do you remember seeing this movie in the theater when you were younger? I was um, I guess I was probably a freshman in college. I believe what was the year that it came out? Uh, 1993. 1993. Yeah, it was uh, between my freshman and sophomore year of college, and you know, it, it, people. Steven Spielberg is no longer. The cultural icon that he was he's a successful director and he can still do some really cool stuff but people forget at that point steven spielberg was you you would view steven spielberg movies as the same way you would view the marvel movies now or it was a just a given blockbuster that was going to happen and uh, Jurassic Park, I think, was really at the peak of that. And that was an incredible year for him because he also did, um, the, around the same time, he also did uh, Schindler's List. And so these are two incredible but very, very different movies. And, man, you, Jurassic Park was just such a cool amalgam of Michael Crichton, who was huge at that time. He was just a gigantic author at the time and uh, a big cultural influence. And you have Steven Spielberg, who at the peak of his popularity, and dinosaurs. And it was just this great combination. And and just going to that movie, it's like, this is really incredible. And the way they meshed all the effects together, and it was such a great technical achievement. And uh, it, it was really a very special movie. And, you know, it, you guys have touched a little bit on the sequels. And what's amazing is... It seems like such a gimme. Okay, the special effects are so impressive. You can do cool dinosaur movies. And no one else, including Spielberg, has really been able to do it since. Um, And, you know, Jurassic World was good. I like Jurassic World, but it it was still a movie that had really cool moments that sort of made you forget about the not-so-cool moments or the failings of the movie. As opposed to Jurassic Park, that was just such a perfect movie. The pacing... And the tension and the effects all married together so well. So it's uh, just, you knew it was something special when you watched it the first time. And it's definitely something you got to see in the theaters. It was just amazing to see that. Um, so, uh, you know, just really loved that movie. And just knowing, oh my gosh, this is something so cool. And so many kids are going to, young kids are going to just love dinosaurs or really reignite their love of dinosaurs based on this movie for generations. And you know, now I'm a dad. I have a seven uh, a seven year old who's in, deeply into his dinosaur phase, and I have to be careful what I show him from Jurassic Park. But I do show him some of the cool scenes, 
It's like, and just seeing his eyes go big because these creatures brought to life and not looking cheap or chintzy, and the effects hold up so well. Yeah, they really do. That's that's one thing too that um, I do admire about the film is it very easily could have been a little more towards an R-rated film or something a little too dark, too intense. But this movie is still accessible for. I think I was eight when I saw it the first time. Um, you, that, you, you had to make it that way. You had to make it a, an adventure that the whole family could enjoy. And like you're saying, Spielberg is the guy to do that. You yeah. know, he, he knows how to be right in that in between. And I think because of that, uh, you know, the the. Uh, Brad, you were saying that something like Jurassic World and you know other movies that have used CGI to, to great effect and really good-looking dinosaurs haven't really been able to match what we felt the first time we saw Jurassic Park. It's probably because the dinosaurs were used as a punctuation on a scene. Uh, they weren't really you. You of course you went to the see the, the theater because the draw of the movie was you're gonna see dinosaurs and the, you know it's gonna look realistic you know, for the first time ever. But they really are used to heighten. Uh, scenes that are already tense. So we're about to get into the part of the movie where the storm has started and the tension starting to get ramped up. Uh, the Tyrannosaurus Rex scene that's going to be coming in very shortly uh, is really just an additive to the horrible storm that's taking place. So it's not like uh, when people go into these, these scenes, they uh, it's the, the dinosaur isn't the sole draw of it, like we have seen in movies like Jurassic World and you know, uh, I'm just pulling this off the top of my head. Relic. Do you guys remember that movie, Relic? Relic. They came out in the late '90s. They had like the CG, like giant boar type thing. Which With Tom Sizemore. I, I can't remember who was in it. Honestly, yeah. I even saw it in the theater, and it was just, uh, you know, it was fine. But uh, had a had a monster that was decently done. But the the whole draw was the monster. You know, it wasn't like right, the draw right, for right. Jurassic Park is the adventure. It's the park. You know, the dinosaurs are kind of like just another element of the whole thing. There's a wonderful video out there on YouTube where a, uh, a guy gives sort of a dissertation on why Jurassic Park is better than Jurassic World. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, all opinionated. But uh, he also talks about how Jurassic Park is a big analogy for parenting. It's very, very, very interesting. But he said, these are the, these are the things you're going to remember from Jurassic Park. It was all of the dinosaurs. It was all of the things that you're mentioning here, Brad. All of these different things. And it said, here's what you're going to rem remember about Jurassic World. Chris Pratt, Chris Pratt, Chris Pratt, Chris Pratt, yeah. Chris Pratt. Yeah. And I love Chris Pratt. I could watch the dude all day. And I thought he was perfectly fine in Jurassic World. But it's still, that's there, there's uh, less to take away from it than there is in Jurassic Park. Honestly, right now, I think Chris Pratt's a bigger draw than dinosaurs are. And, uh, you know, yeah. I th maybe there was a meta level to... to Jurassic World, where I know that Colin Trevorrow, one of his pitches originally for the movie is, what if people got bored of dinosaurs? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that they use that as a jumping off point, right, you yeah. know, so, yeah. um, but Brad, you know, we brought you on, uh, for this episode and I think we all agreed before we, we started recording the show, this is actually a really great minute. Uh, however, whenever you contacted us, they're like, Hey man, when can I come on the show? We were, uh, I want to be there for the Triceratops. <laughs> we had just wrapped up recording yeah. that. Uh, and you said that was one of your favorite parts of the movie. Uh, why does that scene resonate with you so much? It, it was such a cool scene. First off, just the contact that, uh, the actors, the characters had with the dinosaurs and watching these scientific minds trying to noodle everything out and watching Grant with his favorite dinosaur of all time, the Triceratops, and him connecting with it and also seeing this sick animal and realizing, oh my gosh, these people don't know what they're doing. They're and it's some just a subtle way of bringing into it not just, hey, these dinosaurs are dangerous, to the people, but the people are actually dangerous to the dinosaurs because they don't know what they're doing. They And uh, you guys touched upon this where it, it's actually an interesting scene because it just sort of set up 
a plot line that was dropped really quickly. Why was it was the Triceratops sick? And it was something that was explained in uh, the book, which you guys addressed, where, oh, the, it was eating the rocks, and the rocks had some of the poisonous plants around them, and that was making it sick because it was using the rocks like a bird would. And uh, it, just sort of a fun connecting scene where it wasn't just that these... It wasn't the shark in Jaws, and Jaws is a great movie, another Steven, brilliant Steven Spielberg thing. A lot of the things that Spielberg did in Jaws right, he did right in Jurassic Park, but it wasn't just a dangerous animal that you were supposed to be scared of. It was that little scene and the way it was set up sort of shows, hey, these aren't all just deadly animals. These are living creatures, and they are, and we're damaging them in a lot of ways, and this is a bad relationship all around. Um, also, one thing I liked about that is it, it, they have a great picture still shot of Steven Spielberg sitting upon that Triceratops. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, and it was released and somebody showed the picture on Instagram or Twitter, and a lot of people, um, how would you call them, dumb people thought he shot and killed that Triceratops. That. Yeah. Oh, my God. Have you seen this guy? Uh, I think now that you're saying it, I do remember like, this. How, could, you, how yeah. could this man do this to this poor animal? Yeah, it was like uh, Cecil the Lion type thing, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It was fantastic. It's like, oh, my gosh, people are just so damn dumb. And... <laughs> So it's funny because it's a little scene. It's not one of the big action scenes or one of the, like, you know, the you know your guys are going to be coming up on the fantastic T-Rex scene. And that's just a master class on filmmaking and tension and doing a lot with actually little. But this is such a great way of subtly setting up a lot of um, the ideas behind this movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. It, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That uh, I, 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 you know, I. I think it kind of re- resonated with me on that level, but mm-hmm. I never really thought of it about the fact that they're the ones who are harming the dinosaurs. Yeah. And this is kind of a scene that shows it. We've, we've been talking on the show about the irresponsibility that InGen has had during this whole thing. You know, that they are putting plants out that, uh, you know, are poisonous just because they think they look pretty. And this scene, like you're saying, uh, just to sum it up again, is kind of like that the humans are not ready for this responsibility, which I think is one of the themes that Michael Crichton was really going for uh-huh. as far as his thoughts on, like, genetic engineering and stuff like that. So, um but yeah, very interesting, Brad, and uh, I, I think that uh, that's that's a very cool way to look at the uh, you know the Triceratops scene. So, well, hey, if you guys are ready to get into it, let's go ahead and uh, jump on into minute number fifty-five. How about that? Let's do it. Yeah, let's make it happen. In the previous minute, we saw the tour group split up as the storm intensified. As the minute ended, Nedry tried to bargain for more time with his contact at the boat dock. At minute number 55, John Hammond is looking at his cane, which contains a mosquito encased in amber. Ray is telling John that the visitor vehicles are returning to the garage. As Hammond slowly rotates the amber, he says, So much for our first tour. Two no-shows and one sick triceratops. At 55.12, Ray removes a cigarette from his mouth and tells Hammond that it could have been worse. A lot worse. Behind Ray, Muldoon continues to watch the progress of the storm that is now upon the island. Dennis Nedry speaks up from off-screen, asking the crew if anyone wants a soda. Nedry says that he is going up to the vending machines, and thought that if he was going to get anything, he could grab something for someone else as well. At 55.25, Nedry says that he has had a lot of sweets, and now he wants something salty. Nedry takes a big gulp, and says that he has finished debugging the phones. Nedry stumbles over his words, and tells everyone that the system will be compiling for 18 to 20 minutes, and that some of the minor systems will go on or off, but it isn't anything that anyone should get worried about. At 55.48, Nedry reaches for his computer mouse and clicks a button labeled Execute. A separate window that reads Stopwatch pops up. 
Nedry reaches down to the mouse and clicks it again while syncing up with his wristwatch. And thus ends minute number 55 of Jurassic Park. So in this scene, we're starting to get, I think, the forward momentum, the action of the movie is really going to start rolling right here. Up until this point, we've had 54 minutes of setup, and then we finally get this last minute here. And it's funny because the minute kind of ends right there where he's hitting the execute button, and then he's syncing up his watch. So from this point on, one of the things I love about this movie, and, and I really love it when they do this in any movie, is try to fill out the rest of the movie with almost nonstop continuous action because it really doesn't let you think about things for too long. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't just think about movies, but big tentpole summer release movies like Jurassic Park uh, really kind of like, it's like a roller coaster ride. And the more excitement you have kind of in that back half of the movie, the better, you know, you're going to walk out of the movie kind of like exhilarated. And even if it's a bad movie, or maybe not perfect, you're still going to be thinking like, wow, that was nonstop action. A movie that did this also to great effect, I think, uh, was the first Avengers movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, The last, like, action sequence of that movie is, like, what, like, 45 straight minutes of, like, nonstop, like, fighting, and with, like, almost no story in it, just character moments. But when I walked out of the Avengers, I was just, like, uh, on cloud nine. I thought, like, what an amazing, what a fun time. I think the same way that I felt when I walked out of Jurassic Park. But getting back to this minute right here, it's great setup. Uh, And it's funny because it's a lot of just Wayne Knight stumbling on his yeah. words. I mean, on purpose. It's, that's what Nidri's going we've, through right now. And we've talked uh, before about how we think, or I, I think anyway, that uh, Wayne Knight probably gives the best performance in the movie. Yeah. And this is, I mean, if you don't see it in this scene, then, you know, you're crazy. But um, how he is stumbling over these words, and he's just so full of shit. And then he said, remember, he was trying to get the guy earlier. He was like, you got to give me 18 to 20 minutes. It's such a random number, 18 to 20. And so when he's talking to them right here in the scene, he says... You know, I should. Uh, the system will go off for like eighteen to twenty minutes, so he's gonna get those eighteen to twenty, right. whether the guy in the boat likes it or not. One of my favorite things about this minute is some of the dialogue. It starts off where, uh, with is Hammond, you know, saying we've got two no shows and a sick triceratops, and then it cuts to Samuel L. Jackson, who says it could have been worse. Yeah, a lot worse, and. That's a very poignant line, uh, and because it, could have been has nothing to do with it. It's about to get. It's a about lot to worse. get lower. <laughs> and then right after that, we hear the dialogue from the guy who's making it a lot worse. Yeah, and we cut over to Nidri, and I just think it's a neat little moment. It doesn't draw too much attention to itself, but when you think about it, that's like just this. Um, it, it, it kind of undercuts the audience expectation right there, you know, because it's a little bit like reassuring, like, oh, don't worry, that's as bad as it's going to get. Right. And then it continues to get worse, <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, a lot but, worse. Yeah, yeah, because of Nidri's actions. But, uh, Brad, what, what, what are your thoughts on minute number 55? Uh, well, first off, first, it's crazy seeing Samuel L. Jackson as a nobody. This is basically at the point where he was still just sort of a working actor. And seeing him and just, you know, waiting for him to call someone an MF or first off, it's like, why isn't he saying how he doesn't, he's tired of these uh, MFing dinosaurs in this MFing island. But, uh, and just seeing him and the realization is like, oh, this is getting worse. And also it shows you how everyone's been saying, you can tell that everyone's been saying to Richard Attenborough's character, the name of course escapes me because that's how my brain works. But he... Everyone's been telling him how bad this can get, and there's sort of a knowing thing where Samuel L. Jackson's like, "Hey, we, this could be worse. We we know we've been telling you how much worse this can get, and so many people uh, from top to bottom have been telling him how poorly put together all of this is, and how much of a disaster it could be, and he, they are just not being listened to. 
Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's funny that he always goes back to his saying, we spared no expense, mm-hmm. but you didn't think about anything, John. You know, you're dumping all this money into everything to try to get it out, but you're not really thinking about the repercussions you, of you anything. You were so excited about whether or not you could, you didn't stop to think if you should. Right. Uh, you know, Malcolm, in the Chaos Theory, is the entire conceit of the entire thing, the whole story. And um, he's one of the most vocal people about the fact that you cannot, you shouldn't do this. Right. And so... Uh, yeah, no, Brad, you're, you're absolutely right with what you're saying. Um, and when it comes to Wayne Knight, first off, that is just a brilliant idea, the way the Nedry character was designed, because, and this is sort of the charm of having a movie where you have a director who really has control and complete creative control, because you have a feeling that if they were to do this movie today, the Nedry character would, first off, wouldn't even exist the way he is. It would be a slick very, very, very evil, or they would have people, like, doing ninja stuff to break in and causing the problems. It wouldn't be a, a nervous, ticky, fat guy with beads of sweat. You, you almost could see neon signs, like, he's about ready to screw you over. And he he wasn't out... They weren't outsmarted by a, a super spy. It was... They just weren't even thinking that somebody could be trying to sabotage their work or trying to steal from them. And they let a guy who was... Obviously, I mean, the way he's sweating and freaking out and stumbling over his words, of course he's trying to steal the, the dinosaur embryos. And the way they're looking at him, you can see they don't, they're just dismissing him. They're just looking at him thinking, what an idiot, but going on about their business as opposed to somebody saying, oh, hey guys, does anybody want to follow him? Because I'm pretty sure he's about ready to like get a lot of us killed and try to steal embryos. And you would think Muldoon would be hip to it all. Right. That guy's always a, has an eye for danger. Brad, to tack on to what you're saying, too, one of the, the funniest moments about this is that there is a shot where Ray, Samuel Jackson's character, kind of stops paying attention to him and turns his head yeah. and goes back to what he's doing. But Nidri goes straight from saying his piece about, yeah, I'm just going to head up to the machine, head up to the machine, to turning to his computer in front of everyone, pressing a button, syncing his watch. And if anybody had just watched him for a few minutes, they would say, like, what are you doing? Why, why are you holding your watch and pressing that button at the same time? You know, even though he just told him, like, oh, the system's going to compile. It's like he does, like, five more steps of, like, devious-looking things as, as it's going along there. But there you go. There's just the, the negligence and the... You know, of all the entire staff of this whole thing. Right. They don't care. Or yeah. They don't notice. Did you guys it, notice that he has a photo of a donut on his tape to his computer with screen? With a heart around it, I the, think, right? Yeah, there's a heart on it, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, there is something that happens on Nidri's monitor. You can see that there's some text spelt out. And right. It's very, it's not in this tech jargon. It's not something that the audience isn't going to understand. It's very easily spelt out, and I can't really think of what it's trying to tell us. Yeah, it looks like a computer, like a command line or a response about something happening uh, on the computer that it's like uh, like uh, somebody else has checked this. or so, Anyway, the computer uh, code in, in Jurassic Park and all these scenes was written in Pascal. Uh, which uh, is uh, a, a computer programming language for, like, Unix and stuff. I don't, I'm, but I'm not familiar with the programming language, if it actually has. Now, Brady's pulling it up right now, so he's going to read it out to us. What does it say on the, in, the, in the code? Okay, so on his monitor it says, request a comment before we check the file out. It is still possible that the checkout still, let's see, will fail because of the latest revision to the trunk. I'm trying to make sure I'm getting all this right. 
the trunk is already checked out for modification by someone else. Yeah. So, yeah, but, but you know, it's, it's it's not really supposed to make sense. It looks like something that a computer programmer would be writing. Uh, either a response to leave for somebody else, but it looks like it's, you know, I've worked in a lot of companies before that use programs like what you see on the screen here, and it looks like a very old version of a computer program. So, uh, but, uh, I, you know, there's a scene after this to kind of tack on to the, to the theme of what you're talking about here, Brady. You know how they have this, we've talked about this in the show, I think we talked about the Crystal Beth, the computer banks behind him with the red LED lights. That's right. That's real. That's a real computer. Yeah. yeah. I think I remember you saying that at some point way in the past, not so, during the show. Hey, go ahead. Go ahead. Th- those computers with all the red LEDs are actually real. The com- uh, it's a connection machine called the CM5 made by thinking machines. So the computer that they respond to, or they call the thinking machine supercomputers, they're actually the CM5 is made by them, uh, contained many SPARC two RISC processors, and the LEDs were added to make the machine more aesthetically pleasing than previous models. So, unfortunately, though, they were not very good supercomputers, and uh, uh, they actually used mirrors on the set there to make it look like there were more banks of the computers than they had. Yeah, so they had a couple of those towers, and just, like uh, in Aliens... Uh, yeah. Where they try to make it look like there's more Cairo tubes, so they yeah. just put a mirror at the end of the thing uh, on the on the Sulaco. But um, yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. I read up on that, and also you know the the scene starts off with a shot of Richard Attenborough, John Hammond looking at the mosquito encased in amber on the cane. This also happens again at the end of the movie when he's on the helicopter leaving the island. So kind of whenever yeah. he has a moment of reflection of what's going on, he just kind of stares at that mosquito in amber. And it's kind of funny because uh, his brother, David Attenborough, actually had a large personal private collection of animals that were trapped in amber. Really? Yeah. Wow. So I thought that was pretty crazy. Yeah, David Attenborough, he was um, God, what is it, an executive at uh, Alfa Romero. He was... Yes, yes, he was. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. What is that? Uh, David Attenborough, uh, Richard Attenborough's brother, was like a naturalist broadcaster and an executive at. I mean, pardon me. He was an executive at Alfa Romero, the, That's the, right. the car company. The, yeah, yeah. What a family. He was one of the higher-ups there. Um, I want to point out, too, that this piece of music that starts up is probably my favorite piece of music in the entire movie. Uh, I know that John Williams' uh, uh, score for Jurassic Park has a lot of praise for its, uh, you know, the, the main theme of the movie, but this kind of, like, spy music type thing, mm-hmm. this kind of the jungle beats and stuff like that that goes on here, this is my favorite, because it, it perfectly matches what's going on in the next few minutes. You know, Ninja's yeah. whole, like, little spy type thing that... It's funny that... Like you know, like you were saying earlier, Brad, that uh, you know the spy guy in this movie is this big fat slob who just kind of like is running around the place, probably leaving a trail of sweat. You know, and he could easily yeah. be caught by anybody. He could just smell like but, where he's going. Yeah, but he's got this great like spy music, like you know Tom Clancy type score underneath everything. But uh, well, yeah, what was so amazing about Wayne Knight, and this is something that he did so well. And uh, Kyle, I know uh, y- y- you are a bit of a pro wrestling fan. And there's a, an expression I've heard used in regards to really good bad guys where they have great punch-me faces. And, man, Wayne Knight just has the best punch-me face. And everything that he does, you just look at him and it's like, you know what? I wouldn't mind punching him right in his smug, ugly face. Exactly. That's how you put asses in the seats. You know, you put a, a punchable face up there on the screen that makes you want to go see the movie. And Wayne Knight might be the nicest gentleman in the world. I don't know. But his role as Newman on Seinfeld as well. He just looked like this annoying pissant neighbor that, you know, you just wouldn't mind at all. Just kind of like just kind of giving him one across the face. But yeah, he's and he, he plays this role so well in here because the moments that we see him, he's just always being antagonizing to the characters around him. You know, we see John Hammond as this kind of like a uh, sweet old man character in most of the movie. And then 
then he gets into a big argument with Wayne Knight you know, earlier on. Yeah. Or when Wayne Knight even meets Dodson at the uh, Mexican restaurant outside, he's just acting so arrogant the whole time, like kind of like undercutting Dodson's fears of being caught in public, uh, in See, person. And that's another testament to Wayne Knight's performance here and being one of the, the best uh, performances in the movie is the fact that there is never a mo- Okay, he's got you feeling that consistently throughout his performance. I mean, there might be times where you're watching maybe even Sam Neill, our lead character, and like not really caring, not not caring, but following what's going on at that moment in his performance. Wayne Knight, you're feeling it and thinking about it through and through. Right. Yeah. And it's not a it's not a pleasant feeling. Very punchable face. But you know, I do want to say too that he does kind of flip the Nedry character on his head at this moment because yeah. he's it's a little bit more sure of himself in other scenes because of his arrogance. Uh and then all of a sudden, we see him like you know nervous. He's got these nervous tics. He he can't speak right. You know he's, he's babbling. He's just kind of tri- tripping over all his words as I do on the show all the time. But uh, he's definitely kind of takes him uh, takes the character and puts a little bit of a spin on it, yeah. and it makes it much more believable in this. Well, movie. you realize, hey, this is a guy who's really smart and really good at setting up all this shenanigans. But when it comes to actually the time to pull it off. That's not really what he's meant to do. He he's meant to be the guy behind the computer setting stuff up. When we were asking him to basically be a spy, uh, it's it's going to go poorly. Yeah, they, yeah, they picked yeah. the wrong man. <laughs> it's like, what if James Bond were the absolute worst, uh, you know, like unfit person to take on that role? Yeah. You know. One other thing, in talking about Sam Jackson, and I don't, I don't think you guys have brought this up yet. Is it crazy or not that basically his whole character arc is he smoked a lot? It's, you know, and I noticed this also with Ghostbusters when you guys were talking about that and rewatching it, and it's like, you know, it is crazy. Just guys, it, it seems so weird now to see, there's Samuel L. Jackson sitting at his desk smoking a cigarette and tired. It's like, yeah, you couldn't get away with that. That's the part that seems unbelievable to me now. Not the dinosaurs, the fact it's like, that guy's smoking, it's fine. It's you know, crazy. it the, is. Uh, so for fans of this movie, um, or even people who aren't fans of this movie, the uh, Blu-ray edition that came out a few years ago has just this awesome behind-the-scenes documentary, like, retrospective thing. And Sam Neill says, you know, this is one of Sam Jackson's first movies, or first, you know, before he was a big star, and you knew he was going to die from the first moment you see him because he's always smoking. And so that's just, I thought that was a funny observation that if a character's smoking, he's going to die. You know, it's funny that uh, you said earlier, Brad, that uh, this was, he was still a character actor by this point, and I think he had been in... um uh, was it not uh... do the right thing? Thank you. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. He was in that. Um, and uh, had a couple more smaller uh, roles and stuff. This was about uh, let's see, Pulp Fiction. I think premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in '94. So we're about a year out from him really becoming uh, the guy who was in every movie from that point out. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I'd like to see his overall box office draw for the entirety of his career because he's in Jurassic Park. He's in pretty much all the Marvel movies, and he's great every yeah, time. Yeah, he is. He yeah. really is. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's funny that he was pretty old. In 1993, you know, like Sam Jackson might not look at he's in really great shape for his age, but the guy has gotten up there in years. He's definitely had a very heavy last like 20 years of his career. Yeah, very. Yeah. But um, and it was probably around the same time, too, in Pulp Fiction really just really put him on the map. Yeah, I, I it's a shame that Ray doesn't really get a whole lot to do in this movie yeah, other than like you said, Brad, he just kind of sits there at the computer and kind of like calls Nedry out on some stuff sometimes. That's all I've got. How about y'all? That's that, that's all I got. That's all I've got as well. So, uh, Brad, uh, again, thank you so much for coming on today and for, for writing the song Thunder Lizards. Yes. Uh, you know what? I think we're just going to throw it on to the end of this episode because oh, yeah. well, I love Absolutely. it. But, um, uh, for the folks out there, uh, let's uh, just give you the open floor to talk a little bit more about Cosmic Geppetto or, or let them know what the release schedule for that is and just anything else you'd like to talk about as well. 
uh, you know, go to our website, www.cosmicchipetto.com. We're on Stitcher, iTunes, wherever else you can find fine podcasts like the ones from Pele Media. Uh, we are have a lot of really cool stuff lined up. Uh, our next episode is going to be the uh, best of the 90s matchup. We've been doing these on and off for a while. We are finally trying to ramp it up again. And it'll be Army of Darkness versus Mystery Men, the movie with Ben Stiller. Uh, Brady was the judge of that episode. He did a great job. One of the things I love about the Cosmic Geppetto podcast, whenever I listen to it, is it's not just uh, people who know about geeky or pop culture stuff getting together to talk about it, but the show also has um, a socially aware side to the whole thing. that doesn't beat you over the head with it, but it definitely, like, if you want to talk about a subject, uh, like when I was on to talk about another Michael Crichton-related project, Westworld, uh, Jarf brought in the whole idea of colonialism to the show. Uh, so you're not just going to get people saying, like, like, oh, it was really cool when the robot shot the guy. Uh, you'll have somebody coming on saying, hey, let's talk about, uh, you know, like uh, agency in this show and colonialism and things like that. So there's a lot going on on a deeper level. And I can really appreciate uh, what Cosmic Geppetto does to make itself stand out uh, from some of the other pop culture podcasts out there. So, uh, but yeah. We try to think about uh, issues a little deeper and we also try not to be too snarky. Um, I've listened to too many podcasts where it's, people going on and they're going to talk about whatever subject they're going to talk about it just seems like they hate what they're talking about and we we love this stuff we love comic book movies we love uh science fiction we love music these are the things we really like and we want to talk about them uh we just had our a great last uh end of 2016 episode and we brought all the people a bunch of people on who had been guests and panelists to just talk about their favorite thing from 2016. And, uh, you know, Kyle, you were on and you talked about, uh, what was the name of the movie? Uh, Neon Demon? And, you know, it, you could have, it could have been very easy and uh, heard so many podcasts where they would just complain about how lousy 2016 is and there's certainly things to complain about. But no, we want to talk about sort of trying to be positive and fun and, you know, sort of share the stuff we love. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's uh, the people who have been involved with the show really enjoy doing it. The people who have given us feedback have really enjoyed it. So, uh, you know, that's that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, and I think you guys do a great job of it. You know, uh, praise what you love and ignore what you don't, you know, and uh, you guys definitely uh, uh, take that to heart. So, All right, folks, well, we are going to get out of here. Uh, that, again, is the Cosmic Geppetto podcast. Look for it wherever you subscribe to podcasts. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's There's a lot of great stuff coming up from them and a lot of fantastic back episodes of that show. So, uh, Brady, you ready to get out of here, too? Let's do it. All right, folks. Well, for Brad and for Brady, for myself, Kyle, well, thank you so much for joining us. We'll talk to you tomorrow. And until next time, hold on to your butts. Jurassic Park Minute is a fan-supported podcast. If you like the podcast, then leave us a review on iTunes. You can contact us at JurassicParkMinute at gmail.com and visit us online at JurassicParkMinute.com, Facebook.com slash JurassicParkMinute, and twitter.com slash Jurassic Minute. When the rain pours down, get out Strikes hit the pipe. Next comes the lizards and thunder. The lizards of thunder.
Thank you. 